we're basically in a phase where, where we're trying to minimize the impacts of the crisis, uh, but we will never stop being in crisis, right? Like there's no, there's no canceling or stopping the nature of this problem now. The really important thing, of course, is to look at all those things that have happened over the past three decades and go, okay, how do we stop it? Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Katan Joshi. Katan was a renewable energy data analyst in Australia and now works in Oslo as a researcher and communications consultant for a not-for-profit network of climate-focused communications professionals. Katan has been researching, analyzing, and writing about the energy transition, the climate crisis, equity for a long, long time. And he joins me today to explain why the world is in crisis through the lens of climate delay the actions that the fossil fuel industry took in order to delay governments around the world from taking action, to delay their in-house energy transitions, the greenwashing tactics that they have deployed, the link between wealth, power and influence, and the root of the inequitable distribution of resources that sees the planet buckling under the consumption of just a handful of nations. Katan walks us through a report that was released back in 2021 that reviewed the science over the last three decades to explain why we haven't taken enough action before going on to explain the link between energy use, demand and sufficiency, a new concept that was explored in the most recent IPCC report, which introduces a ceiling on consumption as one of the strategies we must deploy in order to dramatically ramp down emissions and more equitably distribute the resources on planet Earth to humankind everywhere. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. It's nice to be here. So my first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Um, <laughs> well, I think I'll focus narrowly on cl- the climate crisis. Uh, there's obviously a very severe biodiversity and ecological crisis happening concurrently that tends to get a lot less attention, which is a terrible thing. Uh, and uh, the, the important thing to note here is that there are people who are very much more qualified to talk about those crises than I am. Uh, I've, my career, I've worked on climate, uh, so I'll talk a bit about the, the climate element of it. Uh, as it happened, I read this paper, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, thanks to the demise of, of Twitter, I started reading all the things on my reading list. It's <laughs> incredible. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't know I was capable of reading. I, it's been a long time. 
one of those papers was a review of essentially the past three decades, right? So since sort of the early nineties onwards, and it answers this really straightforward question that I was a little bit surprised that we don't see asked very much, which is why, not just why have, uh, not just like why are emissions rising, but why have we failed to stop them rising? Uh, so looking at all the efforts to do that and why they don't seem to have uh, changed the direction of the curve uh, over the past three decades, because people have been trying for a while. Like we're up to COP28 happening at the end of this year. That's 28 years. Uh, so this was a really timely paper uh, and it made some statements in it that I thought were really interesting and worthwhile to consider in the context of everything that happens in the day-to-day, right? Like when you work on climate, you kind of get this onslaught of news articles and they're always, uh, you kind of generally tend not to feel great about them. And reading this paper really just made me think, okay, this is great context for everything that we encounter uh, because you can kind of go, okay, well, this slots into why we've kind of failed in the past. And then the question, the second part of your question is what do we do about it, which I'll come to in a moment. Uh, but it kind of slots it into three, into uh, four different buckets, actually. Uh, and some of them I don't really know much about, right? So there's one bucket that is about uh, militarism. Mm. And so uh, it talks a bit about the development of militaries around the world. The the emissions impact of those militaries is is obscene, right? Like it's so massive and they tend not to get, ca- like get all these different reasons, like Oh, it's sort of security and you can't really share the emissions data from these militaries. Uh, but it makes a great point, which is we're not really asking the question of do we actually need militaries and are we counting the climate impact of the militaries themselves? Because of course you get a lot of justifications for the growth of those militaries being as the impacts of the climate crisis get worse, we're going we're gonna to have to get better at fighting and defending the country, uh, which is gross to me <laughs> like i kind of yeah, uh, it, it always uh i come from australia you can tell from my accent uh and there's a lot of this attitude even from people who sort of tacitly seem like they support the cause of reducing emissions when you kind of scratch the surface they're like well i want to reduce emissions because i'm worried there'll be too many people seeking refuge in australia and i don't like uh refugees or asylum seekings right <laughs> like it's kind of it's yeah. kind of gross so the, so the whole military point I thought was really important, but uh, I'm not going to speak too much to it because it's not my, not my area of expertise. Uh, but one of them immediately struck me. Uh, and it's something I'm sure your listeners are somewhat familiar with, but it's worth, um, I'll send you the link to this paper so maybe you can Great. include it in the podcast list. Uh, but one bit that I found really compelling was essentially the actions of the fossil fuel industry over the past three decades. Uh, so this puts it into two chunks. Uh, the first chunk being climate denial. Uh, so this was the sort of whole process of casting doubt on the science of climate change. I think people are generally pretty familiar with this. It's not really that much of a revelation. People kind of get that they went through this whole process through the eighties and the nineties, where they knew about the science, they knew exactly what it was saying. Uh, and, and their response was, well, we better kind of cast some doubt on this so that no regulations or actions get taken on it. And it didn't take very much doubt, right? Like it was a very easy thing for them to do. Uh, they, they don't, they shouldn't congratulate themselves for this because it's very easy to cut down on any science when it's emerging. Uh, and the urgency of the situation should have meant people erred on the side of precaution and treated it as if it was certain, even when it was less certain, 
Uh, and we know now if people had done that, uh, it would have avoided a lot of the harm that we see today from climate. Um, and also it would have made action a lot simpler and easier because we wouldn't have to take on such a, such a steep curve for reducing emissions. Uh, the second chunk, which is my favorite in the whole paper, uh, is climate delay, right? So this is when, this is where things get really, really interesting, right? Because this is sort of the, uh, really unrealized or unrecognized part of this whole subsection of what the fossil fuel industry is doing. So this is when a company or a lobby group or a government, uh, pretends that they're doing the right thing and they're not right. They, they're basically lying or being deceptive in their actions. So they're sort of saying, yes, you know, we, we proposed X, Y, or Z. Uh, and the reason for that proposal or the reason it's designed that way is to prolong the use of fossil fuels. So even a company can basically say, yeah, we accept the science. We're totally down with that. It's all real. They can even say we accept an end date. We accept an end date of like 2050 or whatever. That's the one you sort of get most. Uh, yet their actions can still result in prolonging the use of fossil fuels. And the mathematics of this problem is that it's one which involves the adding up of greenhouse gases. So it's cumulative. Uh, a metaphor that I really enjoy is bathtub metaphor. This is when, uh, you know, you sort of imagine Earth's atmosphere as this bucket or bathtub that's filling up. Uh, and, you know, you can kind of set a date, even though you can kind of see it on the verge of overflowing, you can say, well, by 2050, I'm going to turn the tap off. I mean, uh, and it doesn't matter, right? Like if you kind of keep it, if you kind of stand there twitching the tap more and more open, and you tell yourself that, yeah, yeah, I'm going to turn it off in, in like you know, <laughs> 30 years, right? Uh, it's going to overflow. And then someone will say, what the hell are you doing? You're, you're turning the tap more and more open. And then you can say, well, I have invested in this amazing new mock technology. Uh, so when it does overflow, uh, you can really just mop it up and it's going to be fantastic. You know, you don't need to worry at all. Uh, and so it's, it, the reason I like it so much is because a, a it's funny as you recognized, <laughs> like it, it's a sort of nice visual, uh, but also it, it corrects something that we've been getting wrong about climate. Uh, and you know, my background, I'm a, I'm a former, um, renewable energy data analyst. And then for a while I kind of did like a lot of writing. It was very sort of wonkish, you know, a lot of like analytics and emissions analytics and stuff like that. And the predominant thinking in that world is that you look at, um, annual emissions, like ongoing, you know, like oh, what were our emissions this year? Um, and the problem with that thinking is that you're not looking at the whole picture. You're not looking at what's in the bucket or the bathtub already. When you look at it that way, you sort of realize, holy crap, it's actually way more urgent than we thought. Uh, so it's not, it becomes less and less about the year on year reductions in emissions, and it becomes more about holy crap, we need to stop this as fast as possible. Uh, and so basically the actions of the fossil fuel industry have been about stretching things out for longer and longer so that you end up with more in the bathtub. Uh, that's a real problem, but then they can defend themselves and say, well, you know, what are you complaining about? Like we still reach the same endpoint. We still reach zero by 2050. But if you emit as much as possible in the years before that end date, you still end up with like, two or three times of worse climate impact, right? So this is really, uh, the whole concept of an end date, uh, the whole concept of a target or, or, or a single year, uh, it was a good shorthand for this really narrow application of the price agreement. 
And then it just proliferated everywhere. Um, and the fossil fuel industry has been like, okay, great. You know, we can use this. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, and the consequence has been climate delay. Uh, so they can basically, I I'll give you an example. Uh, the gas networks that run through all, every city that all of us live in, right? Like the, um, this is fossil fuel infrastructure. It pipes methane into people's homes, which they burn to heat their homes or to, um, cook stuff. Uh, and this has been really, uh, something, this is a real struggle, right? Like to, you, you, if you shut down that gas network, you expose a lot of people, generally people in vulnerable situations. Like, so like I'm a renter, uh, it makes me making decisions about the place that I live in very, very difficult. Uh, and if you start shutting off the gas network, the people who are left on that network, i.e. people like renters, uh, they'll get exposed to higher and higher prices. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so one solution that was proposed, so normally you might think a solution to that would be, okay, take some legislative action to protect those ranches, right? As your first priority, uh, from the changes that you necessarily have to make to the gas network, right? You just, you can't keep burning fossil fuels there. It like, it, you know, it chokes people inside their kitchens, you know, from the direct air quality impacts. And of course it causes climate change. Uh, yes. so you, the best of you should take, you should help those ranchers in some other way. What the fossil fuel industry proposes is like, oh, you know, if you want to be nice to these renters, what you should really be doing is blending hydrogen into the, into mm. the pipelines, right? So, <laughs> so, you know, just percent, you know, don't, don't ask us how we made the hydrogen. Just forget about that. Uh, no more questions, you know, we're just going to put hydrogen pipeline and that's us being kind to people at vulnerable situations, right? Like they'll, they'll, they kind of bring it like they're doing it on the good side. Um, and so not to let climate policy like myself off the hook, because there's a lot of disregard for people who are vulnerable to, uh, the different pathways that climate policies can take. Uh, but the fossil fuel industry is like a thousand times worse, right? Because they're basically pretending to be interested in a social justice issue. Uh, but it's actually a form of climate delay. And then if you were to take that pathway, what they'll do is they'll produce a report going, well, I don't know what you're complaining about because if you sort of very gradually increase the amount of hydrogen in these pipelines, uh, then by 2050, you hit the same spot as if you were to pay, uh, for induction stoves for people in, in, in rental properties. Right. Um, so it's really nasty. And, and so that the paper doesn't go into a lot of detail on it because it's, it's actually still somewhat emerging. And this paper came out in 21, I think. Uh, but it's the one that gets me the most excited, as you can tell, <laughs> because, uh, I work, you know, part of my work as an analyst is working on, uh, climate delay, right? So when fossil fuel companies put forward, uh, proposed pathways that are designed to extend the use of fossil fuels and worsen emissions, uh, and it's really, it's, it's, it works extremely well for a bunch of different reasons, but primarily it's because, uh, in terms of. I'm talking so generally here that the climate movement is very big, uh, but in general, it's more difficult for us to recognize bad faith proposals that sound roughly like they're doing the right thing, uh, than it is to recognize straightforward protectionism or fossil fuel company, like, uh, you know, denialism or pro fossil images. Uh, so the only other thing I want to quickly mention on that kind of a bit of a change that's happened in the past sort of one or two years. And I haven't really 
put my thoughts together on this whole thing because it's actually quite a recent thing. But um, increasingly what we're seeing is a bunch of different fossil fuel companies or lobbyists or whatever kind of rolling back greenwashing in a sense uh, and just being a bit more honest uh, about, what <laughs> about what their plans are. Uh, and that interests me a lot, right? Because that's a real shift in uh, the kind of net zero uh, world that we saw post Paris from 2015 to like maybe 2019-ish. Obviously the war, the conflict in Ukraine uh, has uh, caused an increase in the prices of, of fossil fuels and a subsequent ridiculous increase in the amount of profit that these companies make from selling or burning fossil fuels. Uh, and so I, the only way I can really conceive of what's happened here is that the smell of that money has kind of just changed their thinking entirely. They're like, why would we bother greenwashing if, you know, we can kind of make this argument like we're necessary for energy security and energy reliability, particularly in the context of conflict. The pandemic as well played a role in this, like the massive fluctuations that we saw in oil and gas prices. And, and coal as well, actually. Coal doesn't get mentioned too much in this context, but, but it, ha it has seen some similar dynamic. Uh, uh, and particularly if you're digging up coal and selling it, you're, you're almost selling a ridiculous amount of money. And so Shell is a really nice example of this. Uh, so Shell were champion greenwashing, right? Like they were the absolute cream of the crop in the worst way possible. Uh, they, like, you could tell, you could tell that they felt it, you know? They, they really, they, they felt it in a, in a sort of, uh, I don't mean that they believed what they were saying. I mean that the anxieties or whatever it was that drove them to, to put so much money and time and effort into greenwashing, they meant it, right? Like they were so worried about their own existential crisis as like a fossil fuel company. Like, oh my God, what if we're not a fossil fuel company anymore. <laughs> uh, that, that they just like, you know, they, like they really, you know, you, you listen to the, like, I think the CEO probably didn't really feel it, but you look, you listen to the stuff that the other people in the and so what has happened in probably about the past half year to one year, um, Shell, like a bunch of other fossil companies, uh, adjusted their climate targets. So they allow themselves for more production and, uh, and they even allow themselves to have higher emissions company, uh, Shell dropped all of their carbon offset plans. They had a huge, huge array of carbon offset plans, uh, not for good reasons. Obviously they weren't like, oh, that's a very questionable, you know, there they wasn't any of that. It's something kind of just look, we'll just, we'll just admit, um, you know, so, uh, on one hand, it's good, you know, that, uh, the carbon markets are kind of seeing a bit of a reckoning, um, like this whole system of, uh, trading, you know, one person reduces or avoids emissions and they can sell that to a, a polluter, um, just for anyone who's not familiar with the, with the concept, um, that whole thing is seeing a bit of a reckoning, you know, there's, there's a lot of huge questions around, uh, the, um, whether it actually does what it says on the tin. My personal obsession in that context is the way it gets used by emitters and polluters to continue doing those things. And Shoal was just like, yeah, we don't need to, why would we spend, even though it's, you know, 0.01% of their profits are like, why would we spend it? Um, we feel confident in just emitting. Um, and just continuing our business as usual. Uh, so it's not an unusual thing. You know, BP, BP did a similar announcement. They, um, 
uh, I think they added about 300 megatons of uh, emissions over the next uh, seven years, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, just making a tweak to their climate plan. Uh, I, I think you could probably make the argument now they're just being honest. They never really, never really fully intended to do it anyway. Uh, so I never, I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel bad when I saw a lot of these things, right? Like I just kind of felt, okay, this is just a change in the way they're talking. They were never, ever going to shift away from their, from their business models, right? Like this is, uh, something that needs to be changed using other techniques and we'll get into, we'll get into what to do about it in a moment. Yeah. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that in the context of the fossil fuel industry thing. And then just quickly going back to the paper, uh, they've got another section in there that I think is really, really important. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, I see people really bounce between different corners of this, the things causing this problem, right? So you kind of see people sometimes talking about fossil fuel companies and the way that they use the concept of a carbon footprint to shift responsibility from themselves onto onto people um and that's obviously true you know there's like a lot of documented history um bp were probably one of the worst offenders like they had a whole bunch of ads like what's your personal carbon footprint blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh it, it wasn't a particularly effective thing right like they they um uh they kind of do it and they still do it uh but it's never really been a core part of the way that they greenwash or the great the way that they delay climate action uh so it's kind of finishing in that context there's a huge chunk in this in this paper about uh, lifestyle emissions, um, and so the way human behavior, and particularly the way we consume, uh, enables the the growth of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and there's actually quite a there's quite a nicely explained spectrum of different things here, right? So the, you can kind of start with the obvious stuff, right? Which is people who have high income will kind of buy and do things that emit a lot. Uh, so if you can afford it, you might be compelled to buy a massive four wheel drive SUV, uh, and just drop your kids off to school in it every day. And, and you know, it's a, it's a thing that happens a lot. Uh, you might be compelled to take a holiday. Um, you know, so the flight itself has, uh, very high emissions. Uh, you know, I see it a lot. I live in Norway, um, which is a, which is a sort of a high emissions life, high, high lifestyle high lifestyle emissions country. People take holidays in like Southern Europe in summer. Um, they'll kind of fly there, come back at the end of summer. Um, you know, Norway's a wealthy country, right? So we kind of demonstrate this, this concept, um, quite well. So that is an unequal spread, right? Like the, the sort of, um, the highest, just as well is constrained to a sort of small number of people. Uh, and most of the world is not, is any, is nowhere near as wealthy as, as the sort of like top 1%, you know, 10%, uh, say as it goes for emissions, right? So people, uh, you know, the highest, uh, the most wealthy people in the world are the highest emitters, um, and the most concentrated in terms of their lifestyle emissions. I think it, I think it operates in more ways than one. Um, and this is really important, right? So it kind of ties into what I was just talking about, like, like climate delay, for instance. So, so people with, uh, People with like high lifestyle emissions act as activists or, or advocates for their own lifestyles, right? This is a really important, this is a really important aspect of this because they're, you know, wealth, of course, gives you a lot of power, um, gives you a lot of influence. Um, and these people are wealthy, powerful influences. Um, and so they will, for instance, in the city where I live in Oslo, um, outside on my streets, uh, there are some electric vehicle charges being, um, put in 
And then just one street across from me, there's actually a new bike lane being put in. Uh, it's a great bike lane. It's raised, which, you know, <laughs> it makes a wild amount of difference to the experience of riding a bike here in Oslo, which is still you know, a car dominated city, uh, even though sort of 20 to 30% of the cars here are electric. Uh, the, the spread of bike lanes across Oslo has been very good, right? Like it's, it's been a lot of effortful fights from activists and, you know, sort of advocates trying to get more and more bike lanes put in and good bike lanes too. There is one part of our city that doesn't have any, and they've been trying for a really long time. And lo and behold, it's the richest part of the city, right? So it's down near the, it's down near the bay. Um, there's, you know, huge, like massive apartments and, and houses down there. Um, and there's, you know, uh, people, uh, like there's a guy who was protesting their proposal to put a bike lane. Um, and so what happened, of course, with bike lanes is that street parking goes away mm. and people can't abide that, you know, they're like, I need my car storage, you know, where am I going to put my car? <laughs> uh, and so they protest and they protest in ways that are, you know, recognizable as ways of protests from like in the environmental justice world or things like that. Right. So one guy sort of pretended to chain himself to the, to like a, um, to, to a, a street pole, you know, to protest against a bike lane, uh, being put in. And it's like this rich guy who lives in, in this rich part of Oslo. Um, and so I think, right. Because they, that it's not just that this guy is living a high consumption lifestyle and kind of just passively breezily going through it. Right. When, when that gets threatened, he will use his power and his influence and his money. Like it's not always that they're doing, that they're chaining themselves to polls on the street. Like probably what's more likely happening is that they're going to have lunch with a politician and they're like, listen, I have a lot of cash and a lot of influence. And if you do this, I'm going to get really mad at you. Um, there's a lot of background lobbying, that sort of stuff going on. Uh, so I just wanted to quickly highlight that because it's a, it's an element of like, so the, the debate about wealth and emissions and lifestyles is very well known, but this whole aspect of, of, um, particularly wealthy people becoming, uh, very influential roadblocks against the growth of, uh, you know, things that, uh, could actually make generally lives better across a city, um, for people, uh, is, is, is a meaningful thing. Right. And so, uh, you also see this at the much higher level, um, at the COP events. Uh, you know, which I think, uh, obviously not really working as, uh, you know, levers for strengthening climate action anymore, but remain, uh, a sort of uh, interesting is sort of underplaying how kind of gross the whole thing can be sometimes, but, uh, it's, it's something worth watching in the context of, you can kind of see these dynamics playing out and you'll see rich countries standing in the way of climate policies that would help poorer countries. Uh, where I come from, Australia is such a terrible example of this from the nineties, you know, they've been doing the exact same thing at every single cop, which is they walk up and they're like, you just cannot take any, um, policies that will too strongly reduce emissions because Australia digs up and sells a lot of it. Norway is not so bad. Uh, Norway at least has a guilty conscience, um, and you know, goes there and actually hands somewhat meaningful amounts of money to like loss and damage funds and, uh, to, um, the, uh, you know, the sort of like green climate fund and like that. Um, but still, you know, it doesn't, Norway doesn't dig up any less fossil fuels. It doesn't make any less money from selling fossil fuels. 
Uh, so even though they have a guilty conscience, it's not so guilty that, that, we'll, that we will as a country take any material action to reduce our role in, in causing the problem, even though we, even though we may be more slightly more willing to treat the symptoms. Uh, so this, like <laughs> this element of, um, lifestyle emissions gets really confused sometimes because people, you know, when you talk about it, people will say, stop putting the blame on, on individuals. You should be focusing on the fossil fuel companies. And it really just depends on the individual. Um, I, I live, you know, what I would probably on paper, where you sort of do the math of my lifestyle, um, it's a relatively low, relatively low emissions lifestyle, right? Like, so, you know, I don't have a car, um, you know, I don't, I don't fly beyond sort of what's necessary. Um, and it's not, um, uh, the electricity supply here in, in Norway is, is very low emissions, right? Thanks to a lot of hydro, even then it's still way, way higher than like a global on a global context, right? Like it's still, it's still an over allocation of like an emissions budget, you know, think about the, the bit of the bathtub that isn't filled up yet and who gets that right. It, I'm still an over consumer of emissions, um, on a, on a global context. Um, and so, you know, that's an important thing. Uh, I don't like as much as I spend my career and my life focusing on fossil fuel companies, uh, it's still an unfair thing. And if I were to take the same philosophy that I apply to fossil fuel companies of like, you're kind of being unfair, you're, 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 you're like, uh, you're taking actions that are unfair and unjust. Um, then I have to apply that to, to the decisions that I make in my life as well. Right. And so that comes down to stuff like, um, there are like council elections in Oslo, you know, so I've, I've got to go and vote and I've got to like try and help, you know, like get the, get the people who are doing the most good into, into power. And like, that, that's a lifestyle choice, right? Like to be politically engaged or not. Um, and so, uh, I think that's a, that's, you know, inequality had been one of the core reasons for the, the reasons this, uh, crisis had gotten to the point where, where it is now and, and correcting that would go a long, long, long way, uh, to helping ease what comes next in the crisis. Right. Uh, so I might move on to the second part of your question, actually, cause it's a, it's a good, it's a good point to, to move on to it because uh, the, the core thing to note, of course, is that climate change will remain a crisis, uh, even in the best case scenario, right? So let's just say we were to magically, even if we were to stop emissions today, um, or if we were to follow the, the sort of very steep downwards trajectory that you see in like these scenarios of like aligning with, you know, 1.5 or whatever, um, the, the consequences would still be catastrophic, right? Like the, the, it would, they would cause a crisis, um, they would cause new crises rather um, in different parts of the world. Um, so, you know, I think that's important to come to terms with, uh, is that we're in a, we're in a mitigation, uh, sorry, that's not the right word. We're, mm -hmm. we're basically in a phase where, where we're trying to minimize the impacts of the crisis. Uh, but we will never stop being in crisis, right? Like there's no, there's no canceling or stopping the nature of this problem now, uh, for all of the reasons that I just outlined in that paper, they took us to this point. Uh, and there's no going back. Um, uh, the really important thing, of course, is to look at all those, like, look at all those things that have happened over the past three decades and go, okay, how do we stop it? Um, is there a way to stop it? Is it even possible? Like, can, can you, can you, how effectively can you fight against these things? A lot of them that, that I mentioned are deeply ingrained in, in sort of human society and the way we've organized ourselves, uh, and you know, the reality is probably you can never fully stop any of them, but you could fight against some of them 
more than we've kind of been led to believe. Uh, my personal thing is the fossil fuel industry and they have spent a lot of time and money trying to fabricate their necessity, right? So they kind of pretend, they kind of pretend that you basically can't live a life without, without them. Um, and so uh, something I really enjoyed from the most recent IPC uh, is a new focus on, and there wasn't anywhere near enough of a focus, but at least they had something uh, on this concept that I really found very interesting. I intend to do a lot more reading about it, but it's called sufficiency. Uh, and it's so perfect deals with this whole unequal spread of, of like resources from a different angle. So not just continue the fight against inequality, continue the fight against like hoarding of resources and wealth, but also think about what it means to have a sufficient amount, right? Like, uh, your lifestyle, um, the amount of energy that you need to get by uh, the amount of material, you know, like just physical items. Um, like how much do you need of it? Because of course it takes energy emissions and, and biodiversity, ecological impact to construct those things. Um, and then of course, uh, the, the thing that follows on is that why would you need more? Like it's a, it's a great, even serious thing to go beyond what is sufficient for you to live a life that you've decided is, is, is that you need. Uh, and so it's introducing this kind of ceiling, uh, on your consumption. Uh, and it's a really, really important concept. Uh, and it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really have anywhere near the prominence that it needs. Uh, but I, I kind of hope, and I will of course, continue lending my hand to trying to, trying to make it get more prominence. Uh, because one thing I really discovered in the world of, uh, renewables, I used to work in, in a renewable energy company in Australia, uh, a wind farm company. Uh, and I think something that I've really discovered in the years after leaving that company is that wind and solar have their own capabilities and their own potential. And for a long time, it was underestimated, but we're kind of reaching a bit of a point where it's starting to be somewhat overestimated. Uh, and so an example of that is the International Energy Agency. They did a um, report last year called the World Energy Outlook. Uh, and they've got this like chart in there of like how, how much do you need to align 1.5 degrees, right? And you kind of, they work backwards, right? They work backwards from the temperature target and go, okay, well then we've got an emissions budget of X, which means we need to get Y amount of energy and that needs to come from clean sources. So we'll kind of just assume that it's like wind and solar and a bit of hydro and nuclear. Uh, and then the number they get spat out from that is a growth of renewables that is really, really difficult. Uh, and I think like, you know, there's a lot of people like myself, you know, like my, uh, analytical sort of clean energy background who kind of got, have been trained in a bad way to assume that renewables are always being underestimated and there's always more potential for more growth and more generation. And it's not always true, right? Like that, like you kind of start experiencing this effect where you come up against more and more roadblocks. So there are environmental uh, issues with the deployment of wind and solar. There's um, social issues. A lot of these are consequences of the capitalistic or also corporatist mode of deployment. So you can kind of solve a bit of it by having more state-owned power, more community-owned power. Um, a book that I wrote a couple of years ago was about energy justice in Australia. And so, you know, more like increasing community, community ownership models. That does a bit of it nothing does the same wonders that materially reducing demand does. 
So I'm not talking about energy efficiency. I'm talking about actual absolute reduction in demand. Um, that gives you an amazing power over the fossil fuel industry when it comes to not just grid stuff, but you know, the whole issue of, um, demand for transport, um, private vehicles, um, demand for gas, um, particularly the manufacturing, you know, manufacturing again, stuff, you know, this, the material stuff that gets used by people. Uh, it suddenly superpowers basically the ability to, um, make the most that you can out of tools like wind and solar, but not deploy them so much that they're not creating their own problems. Uh, I think that's a really, really critical thing. Uh, so yeah, the, the, this is a, this is a pathway to not, not solving the crisis or stopping the crisis, but using it significantly and in a way that, uh, benefits the people who have been most exposed to it. Right. Uh, so, um, this is something that would largely happen in richer countries, like wealthier parts of the world. Um, there are obviously people who are far below what they need to see and they need more resources and they need more access to energy, particularly the materials, like the bits and pieces that wind and solar and batteries, et cetera, are made out of, um, that is stuff that should be going to those countries that need it the most. Right. Uh, like again. I'm in Norway, you know, like we don't, we're not suffering from air pollution. Um, we're not, uh, we're not sort of, you know, struggling with like hydro, we're not struggling with like you know, air pollution from like, um, coal plants to generate electricity yet somehow we're the ones who end up, you know, getting access to like the, um, material resources to purchase electric vehicles and make batteries, uh, and all the energy required to manufacture those things. Right. Um, so it seems a bit unjust, right. Whereas, uh, my family in India. They should be the ones who, who get like, you know, the most urgent access to, uh, the materials and resources, right? Like we, like we are already living sufficient lives here in Norway. Um, and so it's a really, it's a really important concept, right? Um, the, there, there's a lot of good criticisms, I think, of the material hunger of energy transition, energy transition, uh, technologies or, or sort of uh, machines, right? Uh, and, uh, there is a push from mining companies, particularly some of whom have been deeply involved in fossil fuels over the years, to maximize the material hunger of the energy transition, right? So, so they're saying stuff like, uh, you know, again, sorry to keep mentioning Norway, but we demonstrate so many bad things so well. <laughs> uh, we are arguing in favor of deep sea mining, right? So uh, we're one of the very few countries... Yeah, it's really bad. It's really, really bad. We're one of the few countries in the world that, that is just standing up and saying, we got to do this, you know, like the, the energy transition is so urgent, uh, that we need to, uh, be going into the ocean and like dredging up this completely undiscovered and unexamined rich life filled, you know, ecological system. Um, and literally, very literally destroying it because we need to fuel, you know, we need to, we need more lithium for, um, building, uh, electric vehicle batteries. Right. And it's bad faith nonsense, right? Like they actually don't care about what I just described, which is like, you know, a sort of lean justice driven energy transition, because if they really cared about it, they wouldn't then be turning around in express and saying, by the way, we're opening up six new oil and gas fields because we can't go too fast and the energy transition will be slow. And therefore we need to build all these like new oil and gas fields, right? It's complete hypocrisy. 
Um, and I'm allowed to say it because I live in Norway. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's just, yeah, it makes me very, very mad. Um, because as I mentioned before, you know, this is the, these are the attitudes and the arguments and the political systems that have caused the crisis, right? Uh, this is the, the, we can kind of see, you know, in all of the literature or all the research, like people sit down and they go, crap, how did we get here? And that's how we got here, right? Is that exact mode of, of, um, extractivist, uh, sort of thinking around this. Um, and so, you know, it's going to cause a problem. Uh, it's going to cause a serious problem, uh, because it means that the transition itself got slower. Um, so I argue that a, uh, leaner, more sort of, um, you know, uh, not 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 obsessing over gross at all costs type type transition um sorry i know there's a much better way of putting that i just don't know i just gonna <laughs> say it because again it's not my thing but uh, basically focusing on on demand reductions significant demand reductions particularly in like the sort of most energy hungry wealthiest parts of the world um that results in a higher chance of lower emissions uh, much better outcomes, um, in terms of like direct air pollution, um, and, you know, um, climate impacts, all that sort of stuff. Um, and just to quickly bring it back to my own experience, um, you know, I worked in, I worked in like analytics for a wind farm company, but then I, I changed over very quickly into the community engagement side of things. Right. Um, and, you know, I worked for a private corporation, um, in Australia and, uh, their attitude towards community engagement was, was, it was okay. Like it was like, there was worse. There were much worse people <laughs> than, than, um, what they were doing, but it kind of demonstrated the principle that, uh, you know, a, a company that puts its shareholders before people, uh, does not, does not thrive, right? Like it actually, it actually, uh, thanks to the, um, people power around those communities, they'd kind of decided like, well, we don't really want this happening in our community. Um, and you compare it to community owned projects. Um, so, you know, I've been to a few in Denmark and Germany, um, and you know, which two countries, which, which once led the world in, in community power, um, kind of waned a little bit. Um, unfortunately there's a lot more happening in like other parts of the world. Uh, but those projects, they do really well, right? Like people really, are they, they take ownership in it. They tend to be smaller. They tend to be more focused on local needs. Uh, and then you kind of do the math, you put it all together, um, and you combine it with those other, other pathways. Um, and it, then it makes the crisis become a lot more minimizable. I know that's not an exciting way of describing a particularly sort of, uh, you know, uh, energy filled way of describing taking action is minimizing a crisis, but this is fundamentally the stage we're at now. Uh, and I think that it's, I think that's a really important sort of, it just packages together all those different things. That I mentioned that have caused it, um, and on fossil fuel companies in particular, um, I really come down hard on the uh, strong regulation side, right? So we actually really need to strongly, strongly fight for laws that introduce punishments for um, lying, for deception, um, basically any actions that are consciously trying to extend the life of fossil fuels. This is a really tough nut to crack because no legislator wants to go. Oh, okay. I'm going to introduce a penalty for Shell talking about green hydrogen, right? That doesn't sit right with them. They're like, no, they're trying. What are you doing? What, what are you doing? Against probably trying. 
Um, and it means you have to kind of go, uh, read between the lines, you know, look at the actual numbers on the paper, you know, it, like you, when you actually write it all down, it's like, okay, well, the remissions are going to stay flat out to the next 10 years. So that's everything you need there, right? Like that's the, they're trying to facilitate, uh, the worst case scenario for us. They're trying everything in their power. Um, it, it is actually worth mentioning quickly that it is actually us or them. Like, it's not like a, it, that, that sounds like a trite or, or like oversimplified way of describing it. But this is a, this is a mathematical thing, right? Like if they sell enough fossil fuels to, you know, realize their dreams about their business and those fossil fuels get burnt and we suffer physical consequences, right? Like there's only, there is only one way it can go. It's like a seesaw. Um, and it's just like, uh, it's so simple. Um, and I think people are already like, oh, more complex than that. Or is it? No, it's not right. Like they, like shell look at the different scenarios for the future and they point at the one that has the highest emissions. They're like, that's the best for us. Yeah. That's what we want. Um, we're going to try to make that happen. Um, you know, sometimes they do it openly. Sometimes they do it sneakily. Um, it's not just shell, obviously. Um, I could talk endlessly about all the other examples, uh, but, uh, that, that is really, you know, I kind of see that as a little bit separate to the whole issue of like energy justice and sufficiency and, you know, how you deploy, you know, solutions and material resources, fossil fuel companies are their own thing. Um, and the fundamental thing, uh, you know, I talk about this a lot and people criticize me and they'll sort of say, uh, well, you can't shut fossil fuels off overnight. Um, and it, and it really bugs me. <laughs> it really bugs me when people say that. Um, because that's not what's being debated here. What's being debated is either we go fast as possible or slow as possible. And fossil fuel companies are in the second camp, right? Like they're sort of saying, we want to slow the decline as, as much as possible. Um, and just to bring it all back to our bathtub, that's the thing that makes it overflow, right? It's because they want to, they're like, yeah, you can turn the tap off, but just turn it off very, very slowly. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, and so you can see it day to day, you know, you look at the press releases and the news articles and stuff like that for fossil fuel companies. And that is exactly what they're doing, right? So they'll say like, oh, yeah, you know, the war in Ukraine, you know, we got to really, that's why we're building these like three new gas fields. And then once those are underway, they better make sure that someone's going to burn that gas because otherwise they're left with stranded assets, which is their worst nightmare. Um, so whether they do it again, implicitly or implicitly, they will find somebody to burn that gas, even if there is a push to reduce demand. They're like, shit, well, someone's got to burn it. Um, so yeah, new supply, of course, creates new incentives for them to manufacture demand for fossil fuels. Uh, so yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a bug with you. That was a funny through this one paper, but um, it's a good one. It summarizes so much. It summarizes so much in one little go. I, I appreciate it. That was brilliant oh my god I feel like we've um I mean we've almost just covered everything I suppose the one thing yeah. that um I would like to pick out there's a couple of bits let's see if they come together in one coherent train of thought so the the sufficiency thing um like sufficiency I suppose in like a, a world of unequal geopolitics like who gets to decide what is sufficient for each country level because what we might see happen is just sort of this like continuation of like neo-imperialism where 
countries like the United States go, well, listen, like it's actually going to be impossible to ask our citizens to lower their uh, consumption and emissions to that which the UN suggests. So we're just going to take a bigger part of the pie. Um, it's going to be inequitable, but that's the only way forward. That's a possibility. Um, and also this thing about, you know, us or them, I suppose from a comms perspective, right? Um, when I was in Papua New Guinea, I spoke with these um, fossil fuel execs. And I mean, it was like, it was like talking, talking to you. Like they are panicked. They know, they know what they've done. They're totally panicked. They don't know if we're going to get out in time. They were talking about like, this is really our last deal, you know, you know and then we're going to, um, the company's totally transitioning. And I was shocked, yeah. I suppose, by how they were entered into that conversation or the, the way that they were speaking to me. I was like, they are just like us. And I, I don't know, it just, for me, it kind of signals the, the systems dynamic part of the equation, which is like, are companies just behaving in ways that they actually have to within this economic system of for-profit mm. maximization, maximizing shareholders, all this kind of thing. You know, like I really don't see very many people taking decisions um, that, how do I put this? I don't really see anybody taking decisions anywhere that as if they have sort of an element of like free will, say, because yep. to take a kind of creative decisions, like, no, we're going to absolutely stop um, this. We are going to stop the, the um, train of history going off down this track, which is, it, and it has been built to go down this track for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. No, we're going to change direction. I mean, the amount yep. of energy that that takes, the amount of energy, the amount of support that you would need, the attacks that would immediately come from all sides in order to try and like disempower anybody who was trying. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's this yep. system dynamic thing. So like, I'm quite wary now of, I used to be really big on the us and them. I'm quite wary now of that um, rhetoric because I feel like it empowers people unfairly when really what we need to be doing is pointing fingers at those people and being like, you're just bloody idiots. You're just idiots. You don't, you're not actually wielding anything impressive. You don't have any, you don't have clever thoughts. You're not doing anything yet. You're not powerful. You are just yep. behaving as anybody in your position should. You know, and that is not something that should be lauded as evil, quite frankly. It should be lauded as basic mm. bitch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you say. I, so, um, uh, a sort of nice example of that is uh, the I, I I produced this chart um a, 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 like two, a month ago, two months ago, or something like that, uh, and it was a very obvious chart, right? Like it is not a surprising. I, I like to I like to restate obvious things from time to time because I feel <laughs> like it's important. Um, and this is a chart of the amount of investment that fossil fuel companies have been putting into clean energy as a proportion of how much they put into banding fossil fuels right i think right? i saw your chart yes yeah like you don't even need to see it right like you just know you kind of instinctively know what it's going to say <laughs> um and it was like you know the, the 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 reason i made it is because uh there was a new report that came out through a really great um ngo called influence map that looked at greenwashing so that like the fossil fuel companies like you know 60 to 70 percent of what they talk about is oh clean energy you know blah 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 um, and I thought, I thought it was a nice little bit of data just to buttress the fact that they're lying so much about this. Um, and I posted it and a lot of the responses were like, it's foolish to expect a fossil fuel company to, to suddenly become a clean energy company. 
like, why did you expect, what, what did you expect when you, when you made this chart? And I'm like, no, I didn't expect them to yeah. become a fossil. I didn't expect them to transition into a clean energy company. Um, I expect them to get, you know, kind of slapped for lying. Like, <laughs> this is what I'm going for, right? Like, I don't want them to, like, I don't think it would be, I don't think it would actually be a good thing at all if suddenly like 50% of the renewable energy in say the UK was owned by Shell. That would be a terrible thing. Um, they would build it in the same way they build fossil fuels, yeah. right? Which is like railroading communities and, and you know, um, yeah. making sure the profits go to them and not to the people around them. Uh, like it would be terrible. I don't, I really don't want fossil fuel companies being renewable energy companies, you know, um, they need to, they need to disappear, right? Like they need to, they need to be erased. Um, it's not, it's, it, it's, and the very first step in that is taking away the upwards pre pressure that they provide to turning the tap open wider. Um, that's the very first step. It's the sort of thing they need to, they need to have that power taken away from them, um, of influencing. Um, and I certainly see what you're saying in terms of like, this is a systemic thing. It, it's certainly not going to behave any differently. Right. Um, it's not. Like you can't really expect them to sort of take some sort of moral, to have some like moral realization where, oh my God, what have I done? You know, I'm going to change my ways. Um, because they would have 10 people next to them who would be like, well, now that you have that realization, you're getting kicked out. You know, cool. we're going to socially shame you. You're going to get kicked out of the boardroom. You can't make decisions for us anymore. Yeah. Um, and the chances of all 10 of them having that same realization are almost nil. Um, so there is a there is an inbuilt system of protectionism that yeah. like even if one person has a moment they're not all going to have the moment yeah. there's too many of them. um and so yeah that's why that's why i think regulation is really important um yeah. and very quickly i got to go in a minute but um your point about people not liking having things taken away from them uh on the sufficiency thing and governments looking at that and going oh crap well we we can't we can't you know we don't want to be the ones like to be seen to be taken away so let the U.S. Uh, their policy, uh, the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act policy, is all you know, kind of handed out. So like, oh, you'll get a new EV, you get a new pump, you get a new induction stove. Uh, but it's not; they don't have any thing in there about like this would be a lot. This would all be about a thousand times easier if we reduced demand. Um, and you know, yeah, this one example that I've seen a lot of recently is the use of dryers in the US and people just refuse to dry clothes, uh, using air and sun. Like it's just inconceivable. <laughs> like they just don't, um, yeah. And, and I think the best, I think the best answer to that is, um, uh, you know, it's there's no total solution and it's still actually quite a new thing. Like sufficiency of the concept is very sort of like young in the literature, but then also in, in practice in deployment, people are still trying to figure out different ways to do it. Um, and I think one, I think one, um, oh, sorry. I think one, I think one way, uh, that is, um, working pretty well so far is a bit of a bottom approach. So person to person community level advocacy, um, most importantly, demonstrating the actual benefits of having less stuff and needing less energy, uh, you, you know, life is cheaper and, and, and better and you sort of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, low level advocacy that can help a lot. Uh, I don't know if that's to the political question. <laughs> Particularly, of course, in countries that, you know, I've lived in and, you know, countries like the US and the UK, like it's, it's, there's people who don't like to give up having too much. Well, um, I'm sure you saw recently, um, a few months ago, the Conservative Party, Rishi Sunak, 
um, managed to conflate having a car with freedom. Yeah. And said that Labour Party mm. essentially, um, by wanting more public transport, wants to take away your personal freedom. And sat in Margaret Thatcher's old car for the campaign photograph. You just can't make it up. Like, it's so pathetic. That's anyway, get down. I know you have to go. Tell me. My final question for you is who would you like to platform? Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, it's sort of former Twitter buddy. I mean, we're still buddies, but I mean, all guess Twitter no longer a thing. <laughs> uh, Indian activist. Um, her name is Disha Ravi. Um, uh, hopefully you haven't already had her on the podcast. No, I <laughs> Um, but, uh, she's fantastic. Um, she's one of my favorite, favorite activists in the whole world. Um, she got really done over, um, by the Indian government. Um, she sort of very slightly participated in producing this, this sort of document to help farmers protest, um, for their rights in India against some like repressive legislation from the government. Um, there's a lot of sort of environmental and climate elements to that, to that protest as well. Uh, and she has been facing repression by the Indian government. Um, and, uh, I'd re- excuse me, I recently listened to her on, um, this podcast called Drilled, uh, by Amy Westervelt in the U S. Um, and it was so, it was such a great experience listening to an activist, um, who, you know, I, I truly can't imagine what she's been, what she has experienced and is currently experiencing. Yet somehow, uh, she was like really chirpy and really fun to listen to and just a great demonstration of the fact that activism, you know, um, activists and activism itself, uh, can still be, you know, um, really rich people and filled with life and laughter. And and it's, it's really important. Um, I think to remember that, um, you know, it's a, it's an exhausting thing. Um, and she just demonstrates that so, so well, um, that, you know, these are people, um, people that just generally young that want to live good lives um and fighting back against this government oppression is really really important um so i would recommend searching her um she's on you know disha ravi um she's on twitter i think and she's also on a few other platforms um and importantly reading her story as well because that's that's super important Gatan, thank you so much you're welcome if you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.